Hi everybody, thanks a million for joining us today. I'm so delighted to be joined by Kath Edel. Kath, thanks a million for joining us. Hi, lovely to be here. Thank you. So we're honoured to have Kat on board. Kat has a wealth of experience in the dyscalculia space. So we get a lot of questions from parents and from students and from teachers as well in this area. So we're so delighted to get some insights and tips today. Kat is the founder of the Dyscalculia Network, which is based over in the UK, but also does some work also here in Ireland and is a dyslexia or dyscalculia specialist. So Kat, you want to tell us a bit about how you kind of got to this point and, and kind of any, any kind of takeaway that you have from your journey so far? Yeah, so um, I'm actually a primary trained teacher, like, like, like many people, went to university, became a primary school teacher, um, loved working with children, naturally always was drawn towards children who found it more difficult um, and why they found it difficult, probably because I didn't find school particularly easy myself. Um, it wasn't an easy journey for me. Um, so I naturally went that way. Um, I really, really wanted to become a Senko, but the school I was working at the time already had a Senko and there was no, no room for extra training. Um, so I moved school um, and ended up working at um, a boys' private school only with, for boys with special needs, so a prep school. So that was a little bit of an initiation by fire, to be fair, <laughs> um, because it wasn't anywhere where I'd ever worked before and not similar. Um, and I started working with these boys and they particularly wanted math specialism. I was a primary teacher, not a math specialist. Mm. Um, so I was like, hold on a minute. I, 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 I know about math. I like math. Um, I felt able to teach math, but I don't really know how to teach math to children who don't get it very well. Mm. Um, and I suppose when you've got a smaller class, you realise just how much um, some of the children are struggling. And I was just really fortunate to be in the right place at the right time, I think, that the school that I um, worked at had a very um, close relationship with Emerson House in London, run by Jane Emerson and Dorian Yeo at the time. And Dorian Yeo was one of the people, and this was back in 2003, um, who was pioneering um, techniques for teaching people with dyscalculia and math difficulties. She had a particular oh. practice as well. Um, and I was just fortunate to be trained by her way back then. Um, and that grew into a really, really passionate relationship with math for me personally, and also to help children who found it difficult. And um, I've had a lot of opportunities since then to experiment and to work on what I knew, and what works and what doesn't work um, and find out how different children think and learn. I always say I learn more from my pupils, I'm sure, than they do from me. <laughs> always learning. And you're always finding, even yesterday, a pupil said something to me that I was like, yeah, I should explain that better. You've hit the nail on the head there. I, I should, you know, I think you can always learn. Um, and I was still working in these schools, but I felt very strongly that I wanted to concentrate my work with children um, with dyscalculia massive so I actually set up my own tutoring business just myself working from home I thought I might work part-time but it didn't kind of work out that way um, I sort of vastly underestimated the need and, and at that point I realized that it wasn't just children who were struggling there was adults struggling young adults struggling um, and my experience has been largely primary and prep based um, so I had a lot of learning to do um, and I started getting inquiries and I live in a tiny village in rural Oxfordshire. Um, and I mean, not no pub, no shop, nothing. You kind of you can relate. 
Um, and I started getting inquiries from all over England and then also all over the world. I'd get like a random Facebook message from somebody in America or India or Australia saying, can you help with dyscalculia? Um, and at the time, I didn't work online um, and I didn't know what to do. And this idea started to form in my mind that why wasn't there a central place where people could get information about dyscalculia and math difficulties? Um, and that's not just in the world. In in the UK, that's not the world. There wasn't a really a central place for people to go. So this idea of kind of a network for people to go to, um, to get help, to get advice, to get support, just to get someone to talk to. Um, as well, especially for adults, was kind of born. And the Dyscalculia Network idea was there. I met Rob Jennings through Jane Emerson, who's a Dyscalculia specialist too. Um, and I explained to him my idea and he he loved it. He said, let's do it together. Um, so since then, we've run the Dyscalculia Network together on top of our full-time job. <laughs> That's the important piece there. Additionally yeah. to what else you're doing. Amazing. Yeah. And I suppose, Kath, is there's so much in that and we can kind of unpack bits of it as we move through. But I suppose your, your main areas first, let's say moving back to the, the teaching space and, and working directly with students, as we know, kind of at the moment, you know, back to education or back to school and, and all that is on the horizon. What would be some of the main things that you think you would suggest maybe to to a parent or, or even to a student themselves, no matter what age they are, if this is, let's say, a recent thing or even, you know, if it's a, a longer term diagnosis as well. But if it's something that they've discovered recently and they're trying to kind of figure things out and, you know, figure out their path. Yeah, I, I think that the difficulty with mass difficulties is they're not being diagnosed as much mm. as, say, dyslexia. Um, dyscalculia is way behind in the research compared to dys dyslexia. So often um, parents aren't actually knowing that their children have an issue with math. Yeah, completely. So, problem is often the children have been struggling with math when they approach maybe their parent or their teacher and say I'm finding it difficult they're just like oh math is hard or I found math hard at school too um, and they're not really maybe acknowledging that actually this is for that child this is more than that this is finding math really really difficult number really difficult to understand um, and a lot of math anxiety so I think the really important um, point I would say to parents is first of all you know, try not to say I was bad at maths too, even if you struggled with it. Try to say, try to say, oh, math, you know, maths can be difficult. What could we do to make it make it easier? Um, and also talk to your child's teacher early on. You know, I say that we have some concerns about their maths um, and see if the teacher can put into place some intervention within school to help. Um, because it's really important to acknowledge for the child that this is this is something they find difficult. And especially for a child who maybe excels in other areas. It can be especially frustrating for a child who's very gifted, for example, in English, um, to feel like they're doing really well in English. Why don't I get maths? Um, I think it's really, really important um, for parents to acknowledge um, where there's a math difficulty and to think, how could, what could we do to help? And like anything, practice does help <laughs> um, and and often parents read with their child especially younger children but we don't often as much practice math yeah. um, and I think that's another really useful thing parents can do is to practice math with their children um, and try to practice math at a level that the child is at not above the level not what maybe you expect them to be at 
Completely. That's so valuable because obviously there's so much of an emphasis on the paired reading and all the nursery rhymes at such a young age, but not that many are probably regularly doing, you know, math sums before they go to bed. So definitely yeah. that that kind of ongoing practice approach and totally agree, you know, at the level, not the expected level or the level with their peers, if it needs to go back a bit or the other opposite, if it even needs to go forward a bit, it's to meet where their needs are at where possible and and kind of adjust accordingly. And I suppose around the kind of, let's say, homework piece and, and that side, Kat, because obviously that's an ongoing struggle maybe for, for some parents at home with a student, even if, let's say, they're just as is borderline, let's say, general and, um, you know, math difficulties and, and nothing majorly, let's say, diagnosed or detected. Are there any main kind of tips and, and tricks that you think would be beneficial for, let's say, a parent, you know, facing that with a child, you know, every day or, or four nights a week? And they may also be unsure themselves as to how to do the sums. Yeah. Um, I think the most important thing is communication between you and your child and you and your child's teacher. If a child is not accessing a homework that's being set and you you genuinely, you've both tried, you've both looked at it and can't, I think it's really important for the parent not to complete that homework for the child. If if the parent feels confident to complete it, not just say, oh, you know, I'll help and actually effectively do it, but is to say, actually, I'm really sorry, but we tried this and my child is is really struggling to access this at home. And I'm sure you covered it in class, but they've not remembered it when we came home. And again, it can be difficult to say that to a teacher because, you know, you don't want to insinuate the teacher hasn't taught the child and the teacher no doubt has done their absolute best as all teachers do. Um, and it can be a tricky thing to negotiate, but I think it's really important to say to your child, what do you remember from school? Can you think about what you did in the lesson today? But a lot of children will say, no, I can't. Um, and they can't remember. And that could be for many different reasons to do with memory issues, to do with the processing, to do with the fact that they were looking out the window or chatting to their friend, to be fair. <laughs> like, it could be anything. But I think if that can, that could happen once or twice. But if it's a consistent um, pattern of seeing that the child can't access the work, then that's when I would say I really need to arrange a meeting with the teacher, possibly with the school SENCO, um, the special needs coordinator. Um, and say, look, I'm noticing my child is is struggling with maths. You know, have you noticed the same? Um, and what could we put in place to help them? Because I think early intervention is really important before the anxiety kicks in. Massive. Again, there's so much in that. Definitely early intervention. Completely agree. That's so essential. It prevents the ongoing struggle and the ongoing challenge. And we get so many questions at times from parents, you know, of, oh, you know, will we wait a little while? And then maybe a year or two later, they'll still come back. But like, we actually didn't still do any, you know, formal assessments and may not be needed. But if the child is still struggling, you know, it's it's kind of catching it as early as possible. And that communication piece is, is so vital. There's so many parents that will just complete the homework because they don't want the child going in feeling you know that they're a little bit behind or are anxious and it's it's that piece of oh we just kind of pretend you know to the teacher that they got it and um, whereas it's not obviously serving anybody really in that case because a the teacher doesn't know b the child knows themselves that they didn't complete it and then if you move on to the next topic it's it's chronological you know like the next topic may feed into the last topic so it's it's a spiral effect really so it's that's vital cat really definitely and I think that brings me on to something that I really feel strongly about, about maths. And I think it's it's difficult. Um, I use the analogy of Jenga. I don't know whether you play the Jenga game. It's where you have the bricks and you build them up in a nice straight tower. And then you take out the bricks as you go. 
um, and the tower gets wobblier, as you notice, especially if you take bricks out near the bottom. Anyone who likes to play the game really dangerously likes to take the bricks out as close to the bottom as possible um, and try and make that tower wobbly for the next person. Well, maths is a bit like that. Maths needs to be built up in layers mm -hmm. on the bottom, right from things like number bonds for 10, understanding place value, understanding 10 and 3 makes 13 because a 10 and a 3 together in place value uh, create a 13. So things like those early number skills, um, if those skills do not develop into bridging strategies, so how do we do eight add four? We could do eight and we could add two to make 10 and then add another two to make 12. So those kind of strategies, they build up to make a secure base. And if a child doesn't gain those secure bases and they're still doing a lot of what we call ones counting. Now, nothing wrong with finger counting. It's a brilliant early developmental, 10 fingers and so on. But over time, math skills need to move beyond that. And often that's a sticking point, a struggling point. So if that tower doesn't build up strong and straight, then the more we put on top of it, we think, as I, I thought the same as a parent, I'm a parent too. And the more you put on top, you think to yourself, oh, I'm going to make my child better. But in but fact, what happens is that as you build up that tower, the more you put on, if that base isn't really strong, you actually make the tower wobblier and that makes the child anxious. And you can even get to a point where it's so wobbly that the tower falls over and the child refuses to do maths, won't engage with maths, and you have that panic um, in the child, the math anxiety. So it's really, really important to build up from the bottom up. And quite often with pupils that I see, they're not not capable of learning math. They might not have dyscalculia. They've got a math difficulty because they've missed some building blocks at the bottom. And if we put those building blocks in the bottom back in, then we can rebuild a foundation and then everything else makes sense. Exactly. Yeah, definitely. Like basis for everything, you know, English, languages, history, geography, you know, anything needs to be kind of built from definitely the ground up instead of, you know, we get into advanced level and then the whole thing completely. And I suppose that maths anxiety piece really kind of is, is vital and it's something maybe some of our Irish viewers and listeners don't maybe relate to as much. There's an awful lot of, let's say, built in with English and with spellings, but I don't think that kind of full title of maths anxiety has, has gotten less. Eggs, I suppose, maybe over in this part of the world. You might maybe address that a little bit more and, and any kind of suggestions of maybe spotting that or, or kind of detecting that either in a classroom or in a home setting. Yeah, I think that mostly um, in the early in the early years, we see children being very engaged with number and not often being um, distant from it. But I think we can start to notice children's general anxiety, mm. um, starting to need to go to the loo just before the maths lesson, making <laughs> excuses not to not to join. You know, if from a teacher's point of view, the child always asks to nip out. Um, the child is not very engaged in the math, is looking at their peers a lot for support, stops asking any questions or responding to any questions. Mm -hmm. if they're put on the spot they just clam up um, and you start seeing the child not writing very much down um, or writing down something that's the same as the person next to them things like that are very obvious I think at home a lack of general kind of not a lack of interest in math but not wanting to engage with homework um, uh, tears over homework is very common um, and also that feeling you just get as a parent, as a parent. That little bit anxious, nail biting, um, 
uh, anxious behaviors in general, you know, eyes fluttering, making excuses, oh, I'll start it later. Whereas in comparison, maybe to another subject. So if it was English or reading, they'd come and sit straight down. But if it's math, they're kind of moving away. They're like, oh, can I just watch 10 more minutes of TV? Um, oh, can I read my book first? Yeah, um, so that, that's so vital for us, Kat, to, you know, to spot either in a classroom setting or or even at home. And then kind of like some of the remedies then to put in place to try and rectify that, as you mentioned, linking in with the school and and trying to put in a support plan to help resolve those. Because, as you said, early intervention is key. So as much of that and as early as that can be tackled, you know, when you see the kind of warning signs to kind of as much as possible within reason to, to act upon them, you know, instead of kind of leaving the build and then, as we know, the fact that the house falls over. And I think it's really important for parents. It's really difficult as a parent to see your child struggling. Mm. Um, and, and, it, and you don't want to see your child struggling. That's a natural instinct. Um, and I think that it's really important to acknowledge when a child is struggling to the child as well. To say, mm. oh, I can see you're finding this quite difficult. Let's Let's work on this together. There's no harm in working on things together. How can I help? What helps? And it's the same question I'd say to an adult when they're going into the workplace and they're like, I don't I don't I don't know what to say to explain my dyscalculia. Well, the question is, well, what helps you? What would help you? And I think we have to we have to ask children, well, what would help? You know, do we need to do we need to do something? And if the child doesn't know, then you have to say to the teacher what could help. And I think that it's really, really important. And again, it comes back to that Jenga tower to make sure the help we give is at the level the child is at. Because it's very easy. Um, in a school setting or at home to look at a homework and say it's a year five or six child and the homework is quite tricky you know it's got a lot of complex layers it's word problems it's long division long multiplication and actually look back and say well where is the problem stemming from because if the problem is stemming from the child doesn't really understand their times tables doesn't know them then this is something we have to address before we can address the thing it's no good going back one step we might have to go quite a lot of steps back um, and that can be quite daunting. Um, and believe me, I've started with adults or teenagers and said, we're going to go back to number bonds to 10. And sometimes parents of a 13 or 14 year old look at me and like, you know, but they did that when they were five. And I'm like, yes, they did. But we need to redo that and we need to build up from the bottom. And if we do that in a hands on multi-sensory way, then that really can make the difference. Completely. Yeah, it's vital, really, Kat. And as you said, it kind of can be daunting and overwhelming, particularly for a parent as well, watching a student where they're like, oh, my God, they're going to be so far behind now or they're going to miss out. But it's it's kind of reversing them and seeing it from the side. Well, if you keep going this way, they won't actually retain any of it. <laughs> so it's like you'll do little bits, but if they don't get the basics as well, you're kind of just moving forward down a path without knowing, you know, how you kind of got there. I suppose two of the main things that we get asked regularly, Kat, is in terms of learning the clock and number questions and sorry, maths like figuring out and um, money questions in a school setting. Um clock I know has many dimensions, but obviously there's numbers involved and 
you know, calculating, you go to the shop and you have two euro and you come back and all of those types of, you know, borderline questions and then get a bit more complicated. You buy something else. And those definitely seem to be very, very prominent areas, both in the IR syllabus, you know, in, in 90% of the maths books, they're, they're very regular questions. Any kind of suggestions around that, either as well from a teacher perspective, because obviously you have a background in that, but also from a parent perspective of how they kind of face that as well continuously where they're not maybe grasping those concepts well let's start with the time so the time um is something that's built on pre-skills and parents don't often realize that or you know generally the adult population once you've learned to tell the time you can just tell the time you don't realize how many skills so the important thing to do first of all with telling the time is make sure the child has the skills to tell the time so a child needs to be able to count on and back in fives which may seem obvious, but you don't really realise you've got to do it. So they already need to be able to do that. Backwards particularly can be tricky, especially if the child has dyslexia. So sequencing backwards is quite tricky. and mm. So you've got to have skills such as that. You've got to understand half the clock and a quarter of the clock because we use the word half. So you've got to have understood half and quarter and three quarters of a clock, which means you've got to have understood fractions. You've got to have understood some time duration vocabulary you've got to know that minutes are smaller than hours and things like that. So there's lots of preschools. There's more than that, but that's just you know some of them. So first of all, the parents got to check. We've actually recently done a blog post on time preschools. Um, and I've literally got a video to share in the next few weeks from Steve Chin about telling the time. So look out for that um, across our Discocular Network social media um, and our blog post and our website. So we're actually going to do some work on time in the next few weeks. So there's definitely tips there for teachers. Um, I think using a very good clock at home, which um, we use a clock called the Tickers Clock. Again, there's a link on our website um, and it has um, the time durations, five past, ten past around the clock. And that can really help younger children and older children to tell the time. Um, I think it's really important to know that if a child is struggling with telling the time in the longer term, then that can be also a sign of some math difficulties or dyscalculia. Time can be very difficult the dyscalculia mm. yeah, that could be a little bit of a red flag of a sign completely yeah and that kind of transition as well between you know the analog and the digital place I suppose Kat, that from over here it, it seems like quite a, a quick transition now from I can't really remember now how long we were analog before we moved yeah. to digital but I have some students again and you mentioned kind of later in the years like even teenagers recently and because that was just so intertwined or they felt that that transition was quite quick they now have a, obviously a good understanding when we use digital on the watches and on the iPads but have a very little understanding of quarter past and quarter two as you mentioned there any kind of tips around kind of let's say you know if they're understanding digital is that let's say okay then should we just stay at digital or is is there merit or is there things lost let's say in the in the Jenga tower if you don't know if you don't know the analog version I think that um digital is certainly a really good way to go if a child is finding it difficult to tell the time and you can perfectly reasonably say it's eleven forty-five. I think what's what's difficult is if the child doesn't understand that 11 45 is quarter to 12 yeah. not because they need to do it for telling the time but you need to know it for time duration and organizing your adult life so if somebody says to you i'll meet you at 12 o'clock and your watch says 11 45 and you think that's nowhere near 12 o'clock <laughs> because it's 11 something 
then that is where the concept is going to struggle. So we have to put all the things in if, if at all possible, because otherwise we don't have an understanding. And again, there's another preschool. If you're going to do 1145, you need to know 45 add what makes 60, because there's 60 minutes in an hour. So you need to be able to count on or up. We call it counting on or counting up. Sometimes in school they call it frog frogs jumping forward you need to be able to do that and that can be where the skill the child is struggling or the adult is struggling because they haven't learned to count forward in their heads to be able to count from 45 up to the next hour vital yeah that that's so important as you mentioned it's you know a way around it of sticking to the digital but as you said it's it's grasping that concept and it's something you know, any of us with different ways of learning may face regularly, but that whole concept of time of like, oh, you know, it's five to let's just, I always use this, I move the house this way and I'll move it back because I understand time, but I'll still feel like I'll absolutely overestimate, you know, how many seconds are in each of those minutes. And I think that that kind of piece of, you know, people may really have a good grasp of time, yet, you know, can't maybe practically apply you know what's actually doable as well in yeah. that time frame and that's where at both at school and at home um little sand timers are really good so if the child is struggling with organizational skills because of their difficulty with time first of all it's really important that they wear a, a watch and that they mm. also have a clock in their room um analog digital both whichever but it's also sand timers are really useful or what I call a time elapsed clock where the timer goes down to zero a bit like a kitchen timer because you can then say we've got 10 minutes until we get ready we've got to leave in 10 minutes which you know parents in the morning you know it can be a nightmare to get your child out of the house if you set the timer and say well this is the time you're actually also teaching the child how long 10 minutes feels So Very just simple things like it's when a parent shouts out dinner is in two minutes do they actually mean two minutes <laughs> then you've got to have a timer with two minutes for that child so that they know what two minutes feels like um and i use time elapsed clocks a lot um, so the children know how much time is gone and how much is left. Um, it's very good for an hour. And in classrooms, it's brilliant because nobody says how long is it till break. They can just look at the clock and see how many minutes there are left. Vital. That's so interesting. And it's such an interesting concept, actually, from that side where maybe at a young age, we're surrounded a lot by two minutes and it's actually like 10 minutes. But we kind of we get told it's two minutes, you know, or, or that kind of disjointedness, definitely. Or, you know, even in classes myself and I'm giving kids two minutes now and then we'll move on. And then they're saying that wasn't two minutes like that was way longer. So, I, yeah, probably as an adult perspective, you know, we mean flippantly throughout those without any maybe intent and then at a young age I suppose they're they're taking that kind of as gospel oh that was only two minutes and how much I got done so yes then we wonder kind of why they they have complications then with organizing what they can do most people most people learn that they learn that their parent when they mean two minutes might mean three or four but for a dyscalculic that would be much more difficult and often adults say they find organizing their time very difficult so I think it's again, if you can put lots of experience of what that feels like, it might not, they still might always find that difficult, but there's a little bit more experience of how long that is until I need to be in my meeting as an adult, how long I've got for my lunch um, and so on. And it also teaches good strategies for later, because if you can teach using a timer when you're a child and how useful that is, you know, you've got 10 minutes, set your Apple watch for 10 minutes, however, whatever the child is using, 
Um, as an adult, you can also do that. I need to swim for mm -hmm. half an hour because then I've got to get changed and I know that that's going to take me this long and then I'll be ready for my meeting. Um, that's also important. Definitely. And that that planning piece, I suppose, is is vital. But I just think the realistic planning is is so essential, something that I face with. But I see it in a lot of students of we can get all these done, you know, and we'll estimate that we'll do this amount of time in our homework and it may take, you know, twice as long. And I suppose from that that money question, then please, Kat, the, the, the separate part of the, the strand, anything from that side that you feel would be useful for, you know, kids now or, or even parents or teachers when they're trying to implement that that concept of money. Now, I know obviously you a different currency in the UK so we won't get, we won't get into currencies I mean, we still have 100 cents in a euro and 100 pence in a pound luckily exactly. so, um, so I think again number one is to be aware that in our current world children have not seen money being used very much so have they actually handled money and seen coins? I mean, many five, six, seven-year-olds who've been brought up during COVID mm -hmm. haven't actually seen a coin. They've only ever seen their parents pay by card. Yeah. So money is becoming less of a, of a hands-on um, understanding um, and change is becoming less commonly seen mm -hmm. as well. So first of all, we have to acknowledge that the world is changing and things have changed. Um, personally, I still think if you can give your child a lot of experience with actual money, give and this is a this can be a trauma for parents because it's all go Henry. Well, it is here. I don't know what it is in Ireland, but it's go Henry here. They all have their own cards by the time they're eight or nine, their own debit cards. You know? um, but if you can give your child actual pocket money that they have to actually work with, that's a really good tip because they're going to learn the values of the coins. They're going to realize when they go in the shop that they can't pay for something that's three euros with only one euro. So you're, you're making a realistic expectation of money. And then again, it comes back to the preschools because if a child doesn't know their number bonds to 10, so if they don't know that seven and three make 10, they're not going to know that 70 and 30 make 100. And if they don't know that 70 and 30 make 100, it's difficult to work out what it would be if it was 73 cents and it's going to be one euro that I need and what change will I get? So again, it's the building blocks up. Where is your child stuck with money? Is it because they don't understand the coins? Is it because they don't understand the value, what the value of the coins is, that I need to have a two euro and a one euro to make a three euro, all those addition skills. So where is it that they're struggling? And I, I always say to my parents locally, do you have a local small shop where you can send your child with yeah. a one euro to buy something that's less than one euro with you stood outside the shop or next to them for a bit of confidence and get them practicing? Um, I teach a very dyscalculic child who lives right next to a local shop. And we have practiced that since we started teaching so that she can, have, she can go into the shop. She's confident to go in the shop give over the money and get it and make sure that her change is right amazing um, and that is a that's a really important life skill to know um um i think well so valuable and i suppose it's it's a kind of that whole change piece as well is is really vital card because i suppose as 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 a society now even and, and especially kids we kind of have less value of checking it always we just kind of maybe have a bit of faith that they're going to give us back the right one. I definitely don't check is there 14 cent when they give me back it, it kind of goes into the purse and that's it. So definitely that, 
that checking from a young age really instills that concept of that's the amount I should have gotten back and, and that adds up to that and and that kind of independence piece. There's so much in that, I suppose, really by authoritarian and, you know, confidence building and them going in and picking up an item um, and then, then actually paying for it and then seeing then what they're left with. There, there's so much building blocks, I suppose, in that. Often we've actually said to parents, maybe if they don't go to the full buying piece, can they... Can the child go let's say nearby around it and calculate you know even on a piece of paper or something you know three or four items and what they're worth or what it might be and what change they might get back if they were given x amount of of euro let's say in, in that particular instance so there there's so many ways to practically apply that which is is very important but it's it's definitely a piece that students struggle with yeah and i think that overall when parents are talking to children you have maths is all around us and we forget that because day-to-day life is so busy as a family isn't it you know you're running to school you're running here but you have so many opportunities just to talk about number right from when children are well babies onwards you know we can t- we talk about count you know we count things with babies we're like oh you've got one two three things you know and we do all the counting and number rhymes but we need to carry that on into children being older children oh what's the speed limit here on that sign what does it say oh it says 30 that means is mommy speedo going 30 (laughs) Um, and talking about number talking about how much things are costing a shop even if you're paying by card oh that costs 75 euros and 25 cents for that shop today because often we don't even talk about those things we just scan you know the shop assistant scans it we scan our card there's no change involved and then in class there's a word problem and it's got change Mm. and it's got those things so we have to be aware to talk about maths talk about shape talk about measures talk about the time because I think if we just make that simple change of talking about math in a positive way we're we're also helping with confidence that maths is a normal everyday thing definitely that that and I suppose the whole kind of stems really from the the confidence piece really Kat and you know feeling that they're able to at least attempt and tackle sums and then they can kind of build from there and another piece that kind of ties into that Kat maybe you can shed some light on is the number reversal I know we have a lot of students that do letter reversal and that's a, a slightly different concept but that's definitely a reoccurring thing I, I feel a bit more at the moment you know I particular age groups or whatever else but it's it's something that parents actually seem to notice a lot at the moment they're regularly mix, mixing up you know the three it's it's the the other way or or you know Nine. certain numbers exactly Nine. yeah Nine I mean often that comes with dyslexia the, re- the reversal number so I think it's really important to say here that mass difficulties is kind of on a, a, a spectrum much like much like a difficulties um, and I think that's a general consensus across the experts in dyscalculia that there is mass difficulties there's a scale of mass difficulties some people struggled at a certain point maybe they started to struggle called GCSE maths but actually all the way up to there they were fine maybe they were fine with GCSE but A level maths was hard so there's a point where people can find something hard and maybe they've got a little mass difficulty in so and then further on along that line there's people who find some everyday maths quite tricky and quite difficult and that might not necessarily be due to dyscalculia that could be due to they missed some things at the beginning mm-hmm. um maybe they are hard of hearing or deaf and that's impacted them maybe they had some time off school because they were in hospital or a change of circumstances or not a great start because of different situations like covid had a big impact on early education um so those those things and then at the end of that spectrum you've got dyscalculia which is a very very specific difficulty with number sense and understanding number 
And so we have to think that talking about maths every day and so on is really good for all of those groups. And it's not going to hurt anyone to talk about number and talk about maths the same as it's not going to hurt anyone to talk about world affairs or, you know, or anything. But I think we have to really focus on that group who actually have dyscalculia maths difficulties. Because if you're noticing that even in those general conversations in maths, when your child is, say, eight or nine, they're struggling to read for 13, not know it's 13, they're, they're reversing numbers, there's things going on. We have to start thinking, well, hold on a minute, we need to do some more research into what's going on with this child you know is there dyslexia going on is there dyspraxia um is there things going on here more or is it dyscalculia because it's at that point when we start noticing those things the child isn't growing out of um that that we we should have that little warning sign definitely and it's it's all kind of about the warning signs really of noticing things and then how do we best support the the child or the student no matter what age they are with that challenge you know and if it's moving them in the right direction it might not always be perfect but it's it's a little bit step by step that's great Kat any any kind of things we didn't touch upon anything that you'd like to share with us anything up and coming I know you mentioned a few things so guys definitely check out Kat's upcoming blog and then social media networks with lots of useful tips and suggestions and videos Anything else, Cathy, you'd like to, to inform some of our listeners about? Yeah, just, just keep an eye on the Discalculia Network because we do we do post lots and lots of free materials, um, videos from experts, ideas. We have a Discalculia checklist on there. Again, there's also one in More Trouble with Maths for Teachers, which is a book by Steve Chin. But we've got a very kind of simple Discalculia checklist sheet available to download on our website. So if you thought, oh, hold on a minute, there's a lot of these things my child struggles with then you might want to do some further investigation. Obviously, it's just a little tick list. It's not like a, a diagnosis. It's just a, a thought process to get people thinking, is this something that's happening? Um, and I think it's really, really important to support the child as early as possible. So if you feel like your child is struggling, come to somebody like Blossom for Life for help in, in Ireland, come to the Discalcula Network in the UK, look at the information that we've got. We also hold an assessors and tutors list, search postcode finder here um, in the UK, but um, we have a, um, a couple of Irish tutors and assessors with us now, um, and we hope that that will grow um, as well. And we feel like that it's really, really important that people have access to private assessors and tutors if they should so wish. And if the school isn't following what you would hope would happen, then and if private is an option, then we have that availability. Exactly. It's just recognising that sometimes there may not be those resources and, and kind of tapping into, right, what else can we do either on a short term or longer term basis to help the student along the way? Because they're only kind of milestones and things that will be you know needing to catch up on so definitely definitely some some massively useful tips both for parents teachers students everybody and anybody cats so we're so delighted to to have you on board obviously anybody's listening feel free to to get on to cat obviously through our website if you have any questions or want to find out some more information of working with with cat we also can mentioned there she's lots of resources we have a recent booklet um on our website about just some 10 tips to help you know parents in the back to school or anything from that side looking at maths and English and um, so feel free to do all the downloads both between my website and Kat's website and hopefully that'll be enough for you and if not feel free to to get in contact with either of us. Kat thanks so much for joining hopefully we'll get to speak to you soon and thank you very much. Thanks everybody for watching. <laughs>